morning. I will ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. <clears throat> we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to pick it up at verse 13 and look up to verse 20 uh, this morning. So there, uh, Matthew, 5, uh, Matthew 5, 13 to 20. Once you've got it, then I'll ask you to stand as we read God's Word, please. And this is the inerrant and unchanging Word of God. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. <clears throat> so I've mentioned this before, uh, but our chapter and verse divisions are very helpful for finding things in Scripture. Uh, unfortunately, what they do is sometimes build walls in our minds that, you know, this verse is unrelated to this verse as though these are separate, independent thoughts. Uh, and as we're in Matthew 5, we are still in the Sermon on the Mount, same place we were at last week. Uh, and the sermon goes actually all the way through to the end of chapter 7. So it's going to take us several Sundays to, we to work through that passage. But keep in mind, this is one sermon that was probably delivered over the course of maybe 30 to 60 minutes. So what we're dealing with here is one continuous train of thought. This isn't uh, many different things, although we want to take our time to carefully look at it. Uh, but let's keep in mind this is one sermon that we are looking at. So each part logically leads into the next part, so that there's a natural flow to the whole sermon. So don't let the weeks and the verses and the chapters uh, confuse you that way. Verse 13, Jesus starts off by saying, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And this is a text many of us will be deeply, deeply familiar with. Uh, and it's, the language here is one of those places in Scripture where it still uh, slips into our common everyday language. Lots of people still talk about someone that they see as a good guy as being the salt of the earth. We still use that, that phrase even in non-Christian circles. And we borrow that from Scripture. And we also notice in passages like this that Jesus frequently uses symbols, parables, and word pictures when he's teaching and preaching. And I think there's probably several reasons why he does this. First of all is stories are memorable. So if teaching is done in the form of a story or an illustration is given, it helps to get it in our memory. It stays there uh, in a way that uh, sometimes that didactic teaching doesn't. So stories are powerful in that they help us remember or understand difficult concepts. 
Another reason that Jesus himself gives for why he speaks in parables and pictures, he gives us in Matthew 13, verses 10 through 17. Uh, And he says that parables serve as a dividing line. So for the believing, those who have spiritual ears to listen, it drives the truth deeper into their hearts, and yet it remains a riddle for the outsider. So that's actually one of the stated purposes that Jesus gives for teaching in parables, is to confuse and confound the heart of heart to confuse unbelievers. So parables serve as a dividing line between those who get it and those who don't get it. And here we have a picture of salt. And I think there's multiple things that this picture is doing as well. So you've probably heard several explanations if you've listened to Christian teaching uh, about what salt all does and why salt is being used as an illustration of the Christian life here. Uh, and I think there's probably several legitimate applications of, uh, of the way this illustration is meant to be used. <clears throat> and again, one of the, the benefits of using word pictures or using illustrations or using parables, as Jesus often does, is that one story can help illustrate multiple points. And I think salt does that. And I've come up with at least four. That doesn't mean there's not more. But I think there's at least four main things that salt conveys for us. The first off has to do with flavor, and Jesus talks about salt losing its taste. So obviously there's something in this word picture about flavor. Christians are to be salt in the sense that we do add flavor, we add texture, we add meaning to the world. We fill it in, and we should make it more enjoyable, just like salt adds flavor to your food. And this aspect of salt is seemingly also in view when Paul talks in Colossians 4 verse 6 about our speech being seasoned with salt. So there's something good there. There's something tasty there. And Christians should, live alive, uh, should be living lives uh, that are appealing, that are attractive, that taste good to the watching world. We are to be marked by a certain zest, which is unavailable to those who are unbelievers. And increasingly, as our world suppresses the knowledge of God and that we are made in God's image, Christians are becoming more and more uniquely suited to living lives of meaning and of joy. We, more and more, are the only people left on the planet who know what things are for. We're the last ones, seemingly, who know what men are for, and what women are for, and what sex is for, and what food is for, and drink, and children, and work, and art, and everything. We know what it's for. We can be salty in this sense. We, uh, there's a, there's a, a, a flavor and a joy that we have because we know what things are for. We know these are gifts from God to enjoy if used correctly. And I think this use of salt, of all the four that we're going to look at uh, in terms of what salt does and the picture that's being conveyed, this is really the only use for salt that we still practice today. We still salt our eggs and we still salt french fries and so forth. So this is probably the most natural uh, element of what Jesus is teaching about salt to us is this sense of flavor, of adding uh, something good to life. But then, not many years ago, until the advent of refrigeration, salt was also used as a preservative. It kept meat and other things from going bad. You covered it in salt. And so the preservative value of salt made it very, very valuable in the ancient world. Roman soldiers frequently got paid in salt. And if you get paid a salary, that word actually has uh, its roots in getting paid in salt. That was the currency of the day because of how valuable it was, and so we still use language that conveys the value of salt. 
Jesus talks about salt losing its saltiness, and of course, pure salt uh, does not lose its saltiness, but the salt that these people would have known from the Dead Sea had other minerals mixed in with it, which could, in fact, be diluted over time with years of rain and degradation. And this kind of degraded salt does lose some of its effectiveness and thus becomes useless. So in this aspect of salt, Christians stand alone, again, in understanding the origin of creation. What are we here for? What's the purpose of life? Uh, And we know that all of creation was designed to be the theater of God's glory. So uh, we preserve that stamp of God's image on creation. We know what this world is for, and therefore we can have a preservative value in it. We are to be preservative, like salt, because we know, again, what things are for. And as we labor in the gospel to push back the curse and bring the world back to the obvious dominion of Christ, we are being salty. We are preserving the purpose for which everything in creation was made, to bring glory to God. And if we become diluted or compromised, or if our gospel starts to be negotiated or soft-pedaled, when we lose focus of, of what this gospel is supposed to do, we become useless, like this degraded salt. It wears down, its effectiveness is gone, and a compromised Christian essentially becomes a useless Christian in the world. <clears throat> a third element of salt is rooted in the biblical language itself, and that has to do with sacrifice. In Leviticus 2.13, there are instructions that the Israelites needed to add salt to their offerings. And this is most likely related to the uses of salt that we've already seen before. It adds flavor, it preserves, it adds value, uh, and so forth. And so it's fitting that you would put this on a sacrifice offer to the Lord to show the value and the goodness of it. But because salt is used in sacrifice, Jesus' listeners would have had this category of thought in their minds when he spoke of salt. And this is something that probably doesn't come naturally to us because we're not living in that world. Uh, But this is a legitimate biblical application of salt, is to add value to a sacrifice. Uh, And commenting on this, Peter Lightheart says, Disciples are salt in this sense too. The world is an altar. Humanity and the world are to become a single great offering to God. As we offer ourselves in obedient, suffering, self-sacrifice, we become the seasoning on a cosmic sacrifice that makes it well-pleasing to God. So a third element of being salt in the world is that we are willing to sacrifice ourselves. Our, our lives are a sacrifice as we labor in the world. And then the last use of salt, uh, also found in history and in the biblical language, is one that we're probably the least familiar with. At least I tried to think back as I was reading all the commentaries and I was reading everything on this and it seems so obvious. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon addressing this element of salt. Maybe you have. But that that salt is used for judgment. Salt is used to destroy. Salt is spoken of in terms of judgment and destruction in the Bible. Lot's wife, when she's fleeing and she looks back, she is turned into a pillar of salt. Genesis 19.26. And Jesus uses that exact language when he talks about returning in judgment. Uh, In Luke 17.32, he uses the example of Lot's wife of what judgment looks like. Salt is a judgment. Salt destroys. Moses warns the Israelites that if they are going to break covenant with God, their land, it says in Deuteronomy 29.23, will be burned out with brimstone and salt. Nothing sown and nothing grown where no plant can sprout. And when Gideon's son Abimelech tries to set himself up as the king of Israel, the men of Shechem rebel against him, and he responds by raising the city 
and sowing it with salt. Judges 9.45. The psalmist describes God turning a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. Psalm 107.34. And Jesus himself, in one of the fiercest judgment paragraphs in the gospel, says simply, everyone will be salted with fire. Mark 9.49. And we know from history it was a Roman tactic. When they conquered a territory, they would plow salt into the field so that those fields could not produce anything. So one way that you slowly starve your enemy out over time is to salt his fields, plow salt in it. And we have that example that clearly people were doing that in the Bible as well. Jesus' use of salt language would certainly have conjured up images of this, of judgment raining down to his original audience as well, because they knew salt was used this way. And this is the power of imagery. We've seen four images of what salt does. A single image has the the, the power to convey multiple truths all at once. Jesus alludes to the preservative and taste aspect of salt by talking about the salt losing its taste. But what we frequently miss is these latter two meanings. And it's interesting. How often do we think about that Jesus calls us the salt of the earth? He doesn't say the salt of the walleye, the salt of the pork belly. He could. But he's talking about the salt of the earth. So these latter two meanings are clearly in view as well. Salt does things to the earth that it doesn't do to our food. So as we as Christians go out into the world, we are acting as salt by showing that there is flavor and goodness in a life that is lived before the face of God. We are preserving the purposes for which God created the world, and we are offering our lives as a sacrifice, but we are also pouring out judgment on the evil harvest of the world. And so it's no wonder that this salt analogy comes right on the heels of Jesus warning us about persecution. Remember last week we looked at the verses just before this, warns about persecution. And if we are going to be salt in all the fullness of the imagery here, we can expect that some people are not going to like it. There is going to be persecution and insult that comes with this. So it makes sense that Jesus moves right from that into this. He has set his audience up for it. Our lives and the gospel that we announce are both a form of undoing the curse and the evil harvest that is in the world. We're salting those fields so that they can no longer yield escalating harvests of evil. And so we salt the field of envy, for example, so that it no longer yields theft and entitlement. We may salt the field of anger so that there's no longer uh, escalating murder and anger and broken relationships and broken families in our hearts. And as we pour our judgment out on the tired old ways of evil, the salt analogy takes a positive turn once again. We're pouring out our own lives as a sacrifice when we push back against the curse, against the evil in the world. And so once again, the Levitical language of salt being part of the sacrifice is fully back in view as we are persecuted for this, as we face opposition. In verses 14 through 16, Jesus goes on, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives its light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so light is another word picture that is richly and liberally sprinkled throughout Scripture. In Isaiah 60, 1 through 3, God has promised that the light of his glory in Israel would attract all the nations. And then Jesus is said to be the light of the world in John 1, 9 and 8, 12. And the light of God's glory 
has come to Israel in the form of Jesus Christ and is now emanating out from there to all the nations of the earth, just as Isaiah saw. We saw that a few weeks ago in Matthew 4, 12 to 16, when Jesus starts his ministry in the north of Israel, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, where the Jews and the Gentiles are intermingled, and together these are the people who see this great light coming. And one of the problems with self-righteousness and pride is that they lie about the source of light. Self-righteousness gives the impression that light emanates from inside of me. It's self-righteous. I am the light. Look at me. That is hypocrisy. That's self-righteousness. And this is exactly the problem with the outward righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The church and Christians are not the origin of light. Rather, we reflect God's light in the world. And the whole point of the light is to bring warmth and clarity to the world. We're not putting ourselves on display. We are merely reflecting and pointing people to a great Savior, not to ourselves. And Jesus says as much. What's the point of lighting a lamp in your house if you're just going to cover it up with a basket? It does nothing. The light, the whole point of it, is to shine before others so that it necessarily ends up in public spaces. It ends up in the public square, in the view of other people, to do its work. Recently, we came through Reformation Sunday, and we talked about the five solas, the last of which is soli dio gloria, or to God alone be the glory. And this is the end goal to which the other four solas all point, the point of the gospel, the point of personal redemption, the point of sanctification, all of it. The final end point, the final goal of all of it is to put Jesus Christ on display, to glorify a great God. This is why the Westminster Shorter Catechism in question one asks, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we are here for. That is why everything that is created is, is to bring glory ultimately to God. So we're not preaching ourselves, as Paul says, okay? Uh, we sometimes talk about living the gospel. And if what, by, if what is meant by that is just that we live lives that reflect and honor the gospel, that there's a consistency, that's fine. But technically, if you want to get precise about it, nobody can live the gospel. The gospel isn't something we do. If you'd spend 15 minutes with me, you would be very disappointed in the gospel of Matt Platt. However, you may be impressed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? So technically, we can't live the gospel. We, we're not the source of light. We reflect the light that Jesus Christ is in his creation. Uh, after Reformation Sunday, Aunt Evangeline came and reminded me about Bach, uh, <clears throat> Johann Sebastian Bach, who was a very devout and committed Lutheran uh, man, put SDG at the end of all his compositions, Soli Dio Gloria. This music that I just wrote, it sounds good to your ear because I did it for the glory of God. That's why I write music, is so God would be glorified in beauty, in the beauty of his compositions. Bach got it. Moving on, verse 17 through 20, Jesus says, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we have spent some time, both here in church as well as at Men's Theology Night, talking a fair bit about how the Old and the New Testament relate to one another. 
And there's two main ways to see this. Traditionally, the covenants were looked at as being continuous. And so uh, this is one cohesive story, and everything from the Old Covenant remains until or unless there's instruction in the New Testament that it's no longer uh, to be practiced, such as food laws and ceremonies and so forth. But God's moral law is unchanging. Uh, There's something that's called covenant theology, basically. There's something that's come more recently called new covenant theology, which the new doesn't refer to the covenant, which is new, but to the way of understanding this, which is truly new, let's say in the last 30 years or so, which says that the entirety of the Old Testament is irrelevant unless or until the New Testament specifically tells us that we need to repeat something. And I don't think that's a helpful way to view it. I think that breaks it up too much. Uh, I think the traditional way of understanding this is best, that the Old Testament remains valid. It remains the Word of God. Yes, there's some practices that don't carry over, but we know that from the New Testament. But otherwise, we understand this as one coherent story. I think part of the reason we break it up so much is in uh, in the early church, in the very, well, first century or two, uh, a heretic named Marcion came along. And maybe you can hear the echo of Marcion in our own culture. Marcion had this idea that the God of the Old Testament was particularly grumpy. This was a God who was holy, and he had anger, and he had justice, and all these things that Marcion didn't like very much. Um, Whereas the Jesus of the New Testament was friendly and warm, and he was worthy of worship. The God of the Old Testament, Marcion actually thought was evil. Uh, but we got him on his meds. And thankfully, uh, in the New Testament, he's a friendly God that is worthy of our worship. Okay? So he saw a very sharp uh, disjunction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And he created a Bible accordingly. And Marcion's Bible contained none of the Old Testament and some of the New Testament. According to Marcion, Paul's letters were much too much like the Old Testament So Paul was out. Even some of Jesus' sermons did start to sound a little bit like the angry God of the Old Testament, because Jesus sometimes talked about hell and wrath. And so he fixed all that for us. Uh, So we end up with just a Jesus who is good with pretty much everything. That's the Jesus who is worthy of our worship. Okay, and this view is being popularized again today. But I think because of that, there's a category in our mind that sees the Old and the New Testament as more separate than they need to be. And Jesus pushes back against that here. (coughs) So, rather than seeing the Old Testament as having passed away into obscurity, and really its only value today is to illustrate moral points with a few stories about Daniel and Jacob and so forth, uh, and that the, the New Testament is the Bible for us today, we want to say, well, yes, the New Testament is the Bible for today. But it is so as a continuation of the Old Testament. And so if we are seeing it right, just because there's a white piece of paper between Malachi and Matthew doesn't mean it just doesn't naturally flow. We should see that transition as natural as the one from Luke to Acts. This is one coherent word of God. The Old Testament remains the word of God today. And the Old Testament tells the story of Christ in terms of future promise. And it does so through many types and shadows, through many prophecies and through the giving of law. Whereas the New Testament tells the story of Christ uh, in terms of what he has completed and fulfilled. But neither Testament actually makes any sense apart from the other. The Old Testament is looking forward to the promise, and the New Testament is looking back at the fulfillment. Christ is the hinge of history, but these are both telling a story about Christ. And so Jesus says, 
uh, that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And what does he mean by law and prophets? Well, this is simply a way of speaking about the Old Testament in its totality. And then he goes on to say that until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will uh, pass from the law until all is accomplished. And so I'll ask, when do heaven and earth pass away? God's word is fixed. God's word is eternal. And it's true that there are types and shadows and ceremonies and food laws and so forth in the Old Testament that are fulfilled and then thus terminated in Christ. But this rather shows again that this is one continuous story and that they are fulfilled in Christ. And so terminated, and I've mentioned this before, means more like a point of fulfillment, like the end of the battery that you can use, uh, it terminates like that. It doesn't mean Christians don't need to know this stuff anymore because it's all irrelevant. It still is a teacher. It still shows us things about Christ, that the Israelites had certain laws. So they are still meaningful as we look back at them because they are telling a story of Jesus. So even those things that have passed away, for example, uh, like I mentioned, the food laws, we don't have a temple to offer sacrifices in today, we don't have prophets today, we don't have priests today, we don't have kings today, because Christ is the final and full and, and perfect expression of all these things. But they're still teaching us. The moral principles behind, under, and through the moral law can never be altered, however, because these are rooted in God's own character. So what Tim read this morning, which is clearly moral law, uh, if it's wrong to commit adultery in the Old Testament, nothing has changed. It remains the law of God. It remains an accurate picture of who God is. So in these ways, the law and the prophets are fulfilled, not obliterated, not replaced. Rather, they are further explained and interpreted in the New Testament. And we'll see more of this as Jesus preaches in the next few verses that far from destroying the law, Jesus actually intensifies it. We're going to see next week uh, about uh, instructions about lust and about anger. Jesus does not lower the bar to make it easier. He takes a law which is difficult and he makes it obviously impossible. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't lower the standard. He makes it clearly and visibly impossible. Uh, And I think we misconceive of grace in that way. We see it as a softening or as a lowering of God's standard, where God now just kind of winks at sin, and well, you know what, as long as you try your best, it's all good. Um, So a pharisaical reading of Moses and his law might be like this. You, you, if you want to go to heaven, you have to swing across the English Channel. And we'd all grant that that is rare. Yeah, that's rare to swim across the English Channel. But it's possible. Some of us can pull it off. That's how the Pharisees read the law. Yes, it's tough. Yes, it's rare. But we can do this, guys. We've got it. Okay? Jesus comes and he escalates the moral law of God so much that he says, you need to, for eternity, keep swimming around the equator without ever stopping. Now you say, well, whether you make it one mile or a hundred miles makes no difference because it's such a pittance compared to what the standard is. That's what Jesus does when he intensifies and interprets the law for us. It needs to get to the heart. And now we see we have a much bigger problem than just outward righteousness. And so in treating the law and the prophets in this fuller, more meaningful way, Jesus is also affirming the full authority, inspiration, and inerrancy of the scriptures. The Bible is inspired in such a way that even the iota and the dot, so dotting your I's and crossing your T's, that that expression comes from here as well. Jesus is saying scripture is inspired down to that level, down to these iotas and dots. Uh, And again, this is worth our thinking. 
uh, look at many popular statements about how we talk about the authority of the Bible today. Sometimes people will limit uh, inerrancy. They'll say, yes, the Bible is inerrant about the big ideas. Okay? But it's not about the words themselves. The words may be mistaken here and there, but the big ideas of the Bible, that's really inspired. Or people will limit the, uh, the Bible's inspiration to, and this is very common, you'll see this in many places, uh, in all matters of faith and practice. That sounds good, right? All matters of faith and practice. We've got a pretty high view of the authority of God's Word. What's the problem with that? If it's all just faith and practice, what about the history? What about the symbols? What about the types? What about the genealogies? They may all have errors. As long as we're not in faith and practice stuff, the Bible may contain errors, and we do not want to grant that. When we talk about the inerrancy of the Bible, we want to take the same view as Christ. So not, it's not limited to general ideas or to the big stories. Rather, it's jot and tittle inerrancy. It's iota and dot inerrancy. Every word is the Word of God. The Word of God is authoritative. It is sufficient. And isn't that under attack today? That the Bible is sufficient. But it really is. It's infallible. And it is inerrant to everything to which it speaks. And, as the great Dutch philosopher said, it speaks to everything. The Bible speaks to everything. Well, that's not true, Matt. It doesn't tell me how to adjust the timing on my truck because it's kind of misfiring and there's no instructions on the Bible on that. Right. But what kind of a world does the Bible describe? A world in which trucks can work and which logic works and in which timing actually makes sense. The Word of God speaks to everything, so it is inerrant about everything. It is our final authority in everything, no exceptions. Even those things which are not specifically mentioned fall under a broader worldview kind of life that scripture describes. So these things stand until all is accomplished. And so by coming to earth, Christ has accomplished some of these things to which the ceremonial law pointed. But as he explains and preaches on the law in its full sense, that it is to be written on our hearts, we see that the new covenant is fuller and richer expression of what was there all along. Of course, The last phase of fulfillment is the return of Christ to consummate all things which he has established. And in the age to come, the word of God will be so thoroughly written on our hearts that we will no longer struggle with sin. It will seem easy, it will seem natural to obey God because that is the full reality of what is in our hearts. It will be a better reality than what Adam and Eve experienced. They were born in an unfallen but also in an unstable condition. And we are going to be redeemed to a place uh, that is not just redeemed, but it is fully stable. No fall, no sin is possible in the age to come. And so the temptation to somehow see Jesus as relaxing the law is entirely ruled out when it says that whoever relaxes the least of his laws will be least in the kingdom of heaven. And that doesn't mean to say that every law is on the same level of implication. Jesus himself Uh, indicates that in uh, Matthew 23, 23 and 24, where he talks about weightier matters of the law and lesser matters of the law. But relaxing even the least of these does harm our spiritual growth. And on Reformation Sunday, we talked about how Luther got his advice uh, from his father confessor that he shouldn't be so, uh, his conscience shouldn't be so sensitive and he should just try his best. Uh, And one gentleman came up to me and asked me for a better explanation of that, and maybe I didn't explain it very well. But here's the problem with try-your-best theology. Uh, I think it can fail in two ways. One, it has the appearance of lowering the standard, right? Uh, Swim around the equator eight times and try your best. Well, I made it like 400 feet. That's my best. 
okay? Well, you know what, you tried your best. Everyone gets an A+. Plus. Okay, so it can give the image of lowering the standard to say try your best is the standard. But for those of us who are wired like me with a sensitive conscience, there is no stronger death sentence than try your best. Okay, think about that. If, you're, if your conscience is sensitive and try your best is the standard, there is never rest, ever, ever, ever. You can never make a mistake. Because theoretically, if I'm always trying my best, I won't make a mistake. And now the standard becomes impossibly high. This is why I said that this was bad advice. Try your best is not the biblical standard. Of course, we ought to try our best, but we shouldn't be tempted to think that our best is good enough in terms of God-righteous demands. We do our best out of thanksgiving, not out of striving. And we recognize that when we fail, and we inevitably will, we have a gospel of free grace and not of just getting back on the treadmill and running harder. So it's better to see God's law as fixed because we can't negotiate God's holiness. The standard cannot be lowered. The law does get to the heart, so our obedience, while imperfect, should be joy-filled and done for the glory of God. It points us to Christ so that when we fail, we are excused Not because we think we tried our best and that's now good enough, but because Christ forgives those who fall short. He fulfills the righteous requirements of the law for us. And so it is this matter of getting the law into our hearts, of seeing Christ in the law that will create the righteousness that Christ says we need to have, which will exceed that of the uh, scribes and the Pharisees. Their righteousness was external. If we have a grip of the gospel, if we have hearts that have been gripped by the glory of God, our righteousness will exceed theirs because we know what we're doing. It's heartfelt. It's not just going through the motions. It's from the heart. It does exceed their righteousness. So what have we seen? First off, we are Christians here. And so Christ has told us that we are salt and light. As salt, we bring flavor and zest for life that stands in sharp contrast to unbelief. And so we work towards pushing back the curse and preserving the purposes for which God made creation, to bring glory to himself. And as we do this, we are willing to suffer and to sacrifice ourselves in the service of the Lord. And we bring judgment as we salt the fields which produce a harvest of increasing sin and evil. As light, we reflect the glory of the Father before others. And as we follow the salt and light commission, we also needed to be reminded of the nature of Christ's ministry. He did not come as a change of plans. He did not come to negotiate or to alter the moral perfection of God's law. He did not come to give revelation divorced from Scripture. He came as the embodiment of God himself. And therefore, it makes sense that he would accomplish, fulfill, interpret, and further advance the promises that were first delivered in the law and the prophets. And we can do no better. In our age where there is constant pressure to negotiate God's holiness, to bend the word of God to the shifting sands of the spirit of the age, we need to show the same unwavering commitment to Christ and to the authority and to the precision of God's holy word. I was just talking with my friend Aaron Boswell, some of you know at Trails Church this last week, uh, and he was talking about one particular church that had made several compromises with liberalism about a generation ago. And isn't it interesting? Just do this as a thought experiment for yourself. If you drive by all these empty, vacated little churches, whether it's in the city or in rural Manitoba, these are churches that decided self-consciously 
to embrace liberal theology a hundred years ago. Why? To keep the young people interested. And which churches do you go to that's essentially dwindled to five old ladies and a knitting club? Those churches. There's nothing there. There's no meat. There is nothing there for people once you uh, embrace the shifting sand. Once you say uh, God's law is, you know, it's essentially at the whims of the culture. Churches which grow well, not just in terms of numerical growth, but also in terms of depth, are those churches which remain committed to the Word of God. If you want to kill your church, try to make it relevant. You will kill it, okay? Uh, nothing is more relevant than the Word of God on His own terms. So we never, uh, subservient, or we're never subservient to the culture. God's Word stands as the ultimate authority. We can do no better. And speaking on this theme, uh, the 17th century writer and politician by the name of Andrew Fletcher wrote this. Maybe you've heard this expression. He said, let me write the songs of a nation and I care not who writes its laws. Let me write the songs of a nation and I care not who writes its laws. And Andrew Fletcher sees something very important here. Laws are the follow-up to what people are thinking. What's in your kids' earbuds is far more important than what the laws of the nation are. Because the laws of the nation will be whatever is in their earbuds today. Okay? Whatever is being popularized, whatever our affections are being trained and catechized to love, come back in 50 years, that's what the laws are. And that's what Andrew Fletcher is saying. Just using force, just using law, uh, is less powerful than moving the affections. If I can control the music of a people, I don't care who writes their laws because I win. Okay? And that's the, that's the level at which we as Christians need to operate with Christians and with, uh, with our children, with other people. It's not just cold, hard law. We need to get to the affections so that the laws can follow. Our righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees. And so this is why for us as Christians, we need to see the significance of Christ fulfilling the law. Our obedience is not merely external and by compulsion, but is to be genuine and heartfelt, being shaped by the new birth and a love of the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for this sermon that you have given us by your Son. Lord, thank you for uh, his brilliance and his perfection in using language, using word pictures, using images uh, that can convey so much with such an economy of words. Lord, and we, uh, we want to take this seriously. We want to see what you have all packed in to your word. Lord, and I pray that as we look at this, that, uh, that those things which are true and will help us uh, will lodge deeply into our hearts, and those things which are distracting and untrue, that you would remove that from us. Lord, I pray for each one here that our hearts would be inflamed by a passion uh, and a zeal for your glory, to see you glorified, to bring honor and glory to you, and to see that this is one long story of redemption that you are playing out in your creation. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be salt and light as we go out into the world in all its manifold ways, that we would bring flavor, that we would preserve, uh, that we would stop cycles of sin and stop the harvest of evil, that we would be a light that is warm and welcoming and shines brightly uh, and ultimately leads people to you. And then, Lord, I pray that we would see that your holy standards are fixed. We cannot negotiate it. But I pray that we would be unafraid and uh, unwavering in our commitment to abide by your word as we go out into the world and show people the light of your glory. Help us all to do that today, 
in the week and in the weeks to come. Lord, and I pray that you would continue to do your work uh, in each one's life as you see fit. We thank you for your kindness to us, and we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Show us the versatility and the diversity of tasks we have as ambassadors of Christ. Salt brings flavor. Salt saves from decay. Salt invests itself in a sacrificial way, and salt falling to the earth breaks the cycle of sin, destroying the pattern of sowing and reaping evil habits in the world. Light warms, light attracts, and light displays glory. Christ is the light of the world, and we are at our brightest when we reflect his glory so that others may see and follow this light back to him. As we act as salt and light, we are reminded of the constant, perfect, and unchanging holiness of God. This holiness has been given in types, shadows, and moral instructions, all of which are perfectly fulfilled in Christ. The constancy, the dependability, and the perfection of God's law reminds us that we are not authorities unto ourselves, free to alter or negotiate. Rather, we are ambassadors and heralds, proclaiming in word and deed the holiness of the one who has sent us. And you can receive the benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. And go in peace.